Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Can you remember a favorite childhood location? This week during our Zoom Bible study online, I asked participants to describe for us a favorite place from their childhood. And it was great to hear. Uh, We were taken back to milking parlors, to fishing holes. We were taken back to to hidden away places where people would go and play with a sibling or a friend or maybe just be by themselves and reflect or play guitar. It was wonderful to hear these special places described. Places that formed us. Places that uh, evoke such memory. And we recognize that's a time when we were especially connected. Or a time when we felt like we really belonged. Places form us, don't they? I mean, places shape our memories. They, they give us our bearings. They even clarify our identities. So much of who we are is shaped by the places we lived, the places that have formed us, especially during those early times in our lives. There's actually a connection between our physical location and our spiritual formation. Well, today we're continuing our series Renewed, where we're looking through the big story of God and his people, and we're coming to a place in the story where God gives his people a place to grow up. As we saw last week, God came to live among his people, but the people themselves didn't actually have a place to live for themselves yet. They were in a wilderness transition traveling from a place of slavery to the promised land. And it actually took them quite a while to get there. Now, this period of wandering was really important. God was forming his people during this time as well. Their location was part of their formation. God was shaping them for what was going to come next. And it was in the wilderness wanderings that they received the law, for example. It was during the wilderness wanderings that they learned to depend on God for their provision and for their protection. It was during the wilderness wanderings that critical moments occurred in the life of God's people. But by the time we get to the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses is recapping their whole story, he's actually now doing it to a whole second generation of this family that has come out of Egypt. They've actually been wandering now for 40 years. Much of that story is told in the book of Numbers. See, the whole first crew, the people who had been delivered out of Egypt, they actually died in the wilderness. They didn't have to. As the story rolls out in the book of Numbers, they had an opportunity to go into the promised land right when God had intended. But because of their mistrust of God and his leadership, they didn't actually think God was big enough to conquer the land in front of them. They ended up not being able to go into the land at all. And so by the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is recapping the whole story to actually their kids, the next generation, as they are prepared now to go into the land that God had promised them. God is going to give them a land in which they can dwell while he is dwelling among them. And it's almost like a new Eden 
in fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years before. It's like a flourishing garden that God is now putting his people into to care and tend for it. It's very similar to what we saw in Genesis 2. Just as God had created humans and put them in a garden, God is now going to place his people in a land where they can flourish, where the land itself can grow and be abundant. And it's in this particular land that God will work to form for himself a holy people, a people who will then be a light to the nations, a blessing to the world in their worship of the creator, in their relationships in community, and also in their stewardship of the land that God had given them. That's why so much of the law describes those three things. God knows actually that without this land, there can be no true spiritual formation of his people. Humans were created to be in right relationship not only with God and not only with each other, but also with the creation that God had made. There's a dynamic at work in our formation as all of these relationships come together. Without a place to call home, we miss something vital about being human, about being us. And here in this story, we see that begin for the people of God. This land that God is bringing them into is called the promised land because it's exactly that. It had been promised through covenant to Abraham when he was wandering around and then reaffirmed to Isaac and then Jacob. And and then even as they were down in Egypt, it was reaffirmed that there would come a time when God would bring them back to this land. And this land now is being given to them as a gift. You see, the children of Israel, those who'd come out of Egypt and now their own kids, weren't receiving this land from God just because they'd been, well, good kids and here's a reward. They weren't receiving this because they were especially worthy of the gift or of the land. And Moses actually wants them to understand that. You see, Moses himself isn't going into the land. Joshua's going to lead them in. And so Moses is giving them critical words, uh, critical framing, critical advice as they are going into the land themselves. And he wants to make something very clear. This is in the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 9. Moses is setting them up to go into the land, and this is what he says. Hear, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? Let me just pause there. Back in Numbers 13, the famous story where 12 spies were sent into Canaan to spy it out. Remember, 10 came back and gave exactly this report, exactly what Moses is saying, saying the land is good, but the enemy is too big for us. And as a result of those 10 spies, there was two, Joshua and Caleb, who said, yeah, the land, the, the people are big, but God is bigger and we can take it. But the people sided with the, the fearful report and as a result, never went into the land themselves. Well, here in Deuteronomy 9, Moses is reminding them that the enemy is still actually big, that actually they're stronger, they're greater, and who can stand up against them? But then he moves on to remind them that their God is bigger. He says, But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one 
who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. Remember when God's people moved, they were following a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. This reminds them that the presence of God is going ahead of them. Moses goes on to say, he will destroy them. He will subdue them before you and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. The enemy is big, but God is bigger. And what Moses wants them to remember is that God can be trusted to fulfill his promises to them, no matter how big the enemy is. When you do get into the book of Joshua, the whole first chapter, in many ways, is God saying to Joshua, and then God's own people saying to Joshua, be strong and courageous. God is going to do this thing for you. God is going to lead you. God is going to wipe out the enemies in front of you. Just be strong and courageous. Courageous. Trust in God. He's going to fulfill his promises to you. What does Moses want them to understand here? First of all, he wants to understand that this gift of land that God is giving to his people is God keeping his promises. His promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the way through the story. The gift of this land is the fulfillment of an old promise, 450-year-old promise, in fact. And that's clear from start to finish through the whole story that God is a promise-keeping God, which is why we can trust him, why we can follow him. In fact, why he reminds them again and again through Deuteronomy, through Joshua, you need to listen to him. You need to keep covenant with him. You can trust him. God is faithful. And then all through the story of Joshua, through the whole conquest of Canaan and then the divvying up of the land to each of the tribes, all of that is God making good on his promises. At the end or toward the end of the book of Joshua, we hear these words at the end of chapter 21. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. You hear the theme there? God keeps his promises. Now, God may take a lot longer to fulfill those promises than we could ever imagine, but he will always keep his promises. And when he does, we can trust him to do it well. This is part of the way that God is forming his people even as he's bringing them into the land. He wants to show them that they can listen to him. They can trust him. As they obey him and follow him in covenant faithfulness, he is always faithful to fulfill his promises. Essentially, God is saying, watch me as I unfold for you my faithful promises. The second thing Moses wants God's people to understand, though, is that this gift of land is actually an act of both grace and judgment. Grace and judgment at the same time. And Moses reminds him of the reason why the current inhabitants, often listed Jebusites and Hivites and, 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 and uh, Perizzites and Amorites, all these listings of different tribes that lived in the land of Canaan at the time, he's trying to, he wants them to understand what, are the, what is the reason why these people are being displaced. And so he goes on, we're still in Deuteronomy chapter 9, 
verse 4. He said, after the Lord your God has driven these people out from before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession into this land because of my righteousness. No. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then, that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Do you hear the theme in there? It's very strong. Three times in these just a few verses, Moses wants to remind them that it is not because of your righteousness that you're getting this gift of grace. It's specifically because of their wickedness that this is all happening. Grace and judgment are happening at the same time, and the gift of this land shows that. Now, this tells us something very important about God, something that is sometimes missed in the story, particularly the Old Testament, because there are these moments in the historical story, in the Old Testament, where God brings decisive judgment. It's not very often, and as we see revealed here and again and again through the story, it's after a very long-suffering period of patient waiting. What this story reveals is God's long-suffering grace and his righteous judgment. First, his long-suffering grace. The fact is, God does not like to bring judgment like this on anyone, and he will defer and delay judgment as long as possible, often to the great frustration of those around him. Think of the story of Jonah where he is told to go and warn the people of Nineveh, a very, very wicked people doing awful things to each other. He's told to go and warn them, and and Jonah refuses. Why? Because he knows that God is gracious, and if they repent, God will not destroy them. Jonah wants to see them destroyed, and so he runs the other way. It's a famous story. And, of course, when Jonah eventually does get corralled back to give his message of judgment, the people do repent. And the whole book ends with Jonah in his frustrated rage, telling God, I knew you would do this. I knew you would delay. I knew you would be gracious. You remember that story? Well, this is the theme that we see all through the Old Testament, that God is not a God who likes to bring judgment. He delays judgment as long as possible. Do you remember Perhaps back in Genesis 15, when God first made a covenant with Abraham and promised him that this land would eventually belong to his descendants, God said to Abraham, right at the moment he's making a covenant with them, he says, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. So he foretells the long sojourn and slavery in Egypt there. And then God says in verse 16 of Genesis 15, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. The land, the promised land, which is where Abraham was cruising around at the time. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Part of the reason why it's been 
over 400 years since God decided to finally fulfill this promise that he had made to Abraham is that God was actually giving the people who lived in that land a chance to repent, a chance to turn, a a chance to live righteously, to respond to the testimony of creation, to repent and to turn. And and over the years, whether it was Abraham or whether it was Isaac or whether it was even Jacob or, or, or others like Melchizedek, there were witnesses present even in that land to convey the righteousness of God, uh, the opportunity to have faith and to turn. When you think about it, God was so long-sufferingly patient with the Amorites that he even allowed suffering in the part of his own covenant people in Egypt. All that period of time they spent there, well, opposite side of that was God extending more and more opportunities longer and longer periods of time for repentance from these people. And this is very important because when you're reading through Joshua, when you're seeing how total cities are destroyed, it can be very hard for us to stomach this. Both skeptics as well as Christians struggle to make sense of this kind of action. How could God, a good God, sanction this kind of violence? And we have to remember, as we're listening to the story, that in the end, God does bring judgment on evil. But it's after many years of waiting, many years of of patiently longing and hoping. And and, and when judgment does come, it finally comes as a very last resort. But when it does fall, it is a righteous judgment. God is just. And the peoples of this land had forfeited their lives through their evil. These were people who sacrificed their children to their gods, who had given themselves wholly over to abusive practices. And at a certain point, God says, no more. God is not only long-suffering, but he is just. And there is a point at which he will not allow evil to continue to persist without response. And you can see this all the way through the story of Scripture. God's delay on judgment his long-suffering patience, his willingness to negotiate, always wanting to give people a chance and then another chance and then another chance far more than anyone else. But then ultimately, ultimately judgment does fall. Now, as the story rolls out, we understand that when it came right down to it, God decided to send his own son who would actually take unto himself ultimate judgment, the sin of all humanity. That's where this story is going, and we need to hold that firmly in our minds as we see both grace and judgment come. This story is going somewhere. You see, the other side of this is that God still has a larger goal in mind, to bring blessing to the whole world through this one family who is now going to be formed in this particular land. But in order to do that, he's having to press restart. A fresh start is needed so that he can form a holy people. And part of the reason why the people who are currently living in the land of Canaan must be displaced, must be gone, is because God knows that in order for a holy people to be formed, he has to eliminate all these idolatrous, worshiping nations because, he said, if they aren't removed, they will simply ensnare his people back into idolatry and injustice, which is actually exactly what happened. But that's the attempt. To press restart. But even in this, there's a warning for God's people. You see, if wickedness resulted in the removal of the people who were there, just as Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden for their covenant unfaithfulness, God's people are warned again and again that if they fail to keep covenant, if they fail to follow God 
with sincerity and in truth, if they begin to worship other gods and adopt the detestable practices that had already been happening in the land of Canaan, again and again and again they're told, if that happens, God will remove you from this land. This land is a gift, but just as the previous inhabitants were removed for their wickedness, you can be too. And the story rolls on where God's people who are warned of this again and again and again test God's patience to the very limits right up to the point when they themselves are judged and displaced, expelled at least for a time, sent away in exile. And so Moses wants them to know this land is a gift of grace. God is keeping his promises. He's also bringing righteous judgment all at the same time. Now, as we read the rest of the story, most of the rest of the Bible takes place right here in this land with this people, right up at least until Jesus rises again from the dead and and the Holy Spirit comes on the people of God right there in the very center of this land, right there in the city of Jerusalem, right where where the temple is. But then as the story moves on, Jesus begins to spread that blessing beyond. Yes, in this land. Yes, right in Jerusalem, God fulfills his ultimate promise to bless, to bring blessing through Jesus. But now Jesus begins to move his people beyond the borders. We know that this story happens because Jesus himself, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, says, look, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so you, who's he pointing to? You, Jews, you, followers of mine, you, right here in the land that God has given you, you, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he fills his people and we see the development. It takes a few years, but we see the development as the people of God now begin to move beyond the borders, begin to bring the good news of Jesus to the whole world. And the church begins to grow. It becomes Jew and Gentile. And Different languages are now being spoken. and Different peoples are coming to discover what God has done through this people in this land to bring blessing to the whole world. But now the people who are going out to share this good news, they're not bringing violence. They're actually often receiving violence. They're actually announcing that God's good news has come, that judgment has been served in Christ. And instead of picking up a sword to prove that, they often died by the sword. They became witnesses in their own death, the way that Jesus was upon the cross. It's from this land, through this blessing, that this gift of grace then goes to the whole world. Well, I'd like to share with you, as we close, just some implications or applications for this as I myself am reflecting on this. This is a big part of the story of God's people receiving the land. It's very central to the story. But where do we fit into it? How does this point us toward renewal? How does this point toward our own participation? I'd like to reflect on just a couple things. One implication of this is quite simply that our formation today is still happening in a particular location. There's something about our location that leads to our formation. Land is the place where God's people are going to be formed, but that's actually true still because, see, God has given each one of us a place a particular street address, a particular location. Now, I recognize that we live at a time and in a society where we're often a lot more transient. We move around a lot more. And it would probably be worth reflecting on how that rootlessness or transience actually does affect us in our spiritual formation, in our relationships with others. 
because there are actually challenges to that. Uh, it is a society that moves around a lot more. How, how do we allow the places where we live to form us? Or have we become more detached from those places? It's more difficult to steward a place that you don't know very well. It's more difficult to be connected in a place that you come and go from, or if you've moved a lot. We know that's a challenge. I don't mean that's impossible, but it's a challenge for us to reflect on. How does our location, how does our location form part of the way, at least, that God forms us as his people? How does it form us in relationships with each other? Um, How is it that the places we're located uh, were to respond in stewardship to the creation around us? It's a very significant question, and it's tied to perhaps a, a deeper truth that Christian and Jewish spirituality has always been an embodied spirituality, where the body literally matters, the, the dirt, the place, the creation around us, it actually matters to God. It's not something to be done away with. It's not something to be minimized. We affirm that God is the creator of the whole world, and that while this creation does still groan, There's a goodness to it that's inherent. And so as a result, we live within creation as stewards of it. And our spirituality in that sense is deeply embodied. I know you've heard me talk about this before, but it's always important to remember as Christians that we don't believe that we somehow have a a container, a body that a soul lives inside of. That's actually not a Christian idea. Rather, what we see in Genesis 2 and then affirmed all through Scripture is that God formed us out of dirt and breathed into us the breath of life and we became, humans are, living souls. We're whole people. Not only affects the way that we live now in relationship to the world around us, but it affects the way we think of our future hope in Christ. We believe in the resurrection of the body. That not only is our formation happening in a place, but our future is in a place as well. This is why Christian hope isn't the idea of a a soul floating around in a cloud somewhere, but rather a resurrected body in a recreated heavens and earth. Christian hope and Christian life is rooted in location in place. And I think there's challenges in there for you and I as we reflect on how is God forming me today in the place where I live, in the place where I work, right here, for those of us who live here, in the Creston Valley. Our location is part of our formation. And the second thing I think that we uh, reflect on, the implication for this, is that the good news of Jesus that we share is a story of grace and judgment as well. We're sharing about the grace of what Jesus has done for us, and we're also sharing of the judgment that he's received for us. The land being given showed very clearly that God gives grace and God judges. But in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see both sides of that. Paul, when he was telling the Ephesian Christians about uh, the grace that they had received in Christ, he wanted to remind them of just this. When he said this, he said, as for you, talking to Gentiles, people who were outside the covenant people of God, like you and I. And he said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I hope you can hear in that, that What Paul is saying is, 
the way that we had lived and what had characterized the life of people outside the covenant were worthy of judgment, deserving of wrath. But, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then here it is, verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Wow. We need to remember, as we're sharing this blessing with others, that we're sharing a message of grace given and judgment served. Very similar to how Moses is reminding the people that you're not getting this gift of grace because you're awesome. We're told, look, we didn't get this grace because of something we did. We're getting this grace because of something Jesus did. And what's more, part of what he did for us is he took the judgment we deserved. This is a gift of grace. This is why Jesus from the cross was able to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When we look to the cross of Christ, we see grace given, and we see judgment served. And as a result, the blessing that we share as now the royal priesthood of God, the family of God, we're able to form blessing for the world to announce that grace has been given and judgment has been served. In spite of the collective failure of God's people and our continued failure, the reality is we struggle with faithfulness just as much as they did. God is faithful. And through Christ, grace is given. Judgment has been served. Through Christ and by the Spirit, we were able to announce to the world what Jesus has done. We're able to turn around and be commissioned by Jesus to go out into all the world, all the lands, to all the nations, and reveal for them, demonstrate for them in our own sacrificial lives that this grace is real, that God is faithful, and that even now, He's keeping his promises to be a blessing to the whole world, that his people would bless the whole world. You know, in Numbers chapter 6, uh, Moses told Aaron, or through God, Moses then conveyed to the, the priesthood that there was a certain blessing that he wanted them to give to the people. The blessing is quite famous. It's the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. This is sometimes called the ironic blessing. And we often hear it even today because it's a beautiful blessing. It stands as a way that not only we can receive blessing from others, but the way that we can be a blessing to the world. I invite you today as we close that you hear this next song as our blessing to the world. That we stand as a family of priests, a royal priesthood, the priesthood of all believers. And we announce blessing to the world. In this next video, we see churches from across the nation of Canada singing this blessing over Canada.
We see it happening in the UK. We see it happening all over the world. Different countries coming together to offer blessing as God's people over their land, over the world. And as we close today, I want you to leave with this blessing ringing in your heart and mind so that we together can go out and be a blessing to the world.
His favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children. His favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. 
Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.